Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Emma Torbert. She's the managing market gardener and educator at UC Davis, and we're going to talk about her work there. So, Emma, thank you for coming. Hi, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah, I've heard the term uh, market garden or market gardener. What, what does that mean? It just sounds like a strange name for some reason. Yeah, I know. Sometimes I think farmer would be more appropriate and easy, more easy to understand, but a market garden is usually smaller scale farm where they're growing everything somebody would want you know, in their kitchen. So we grow lots of different vegetables, and the idea is that it, we sell everything very locally. So we just sell only to the UC Davis community. Okay. And uh, well, what, what kinds of things do you grow? Just vegetables or any fruits, or what's the mix of uh, products? Yeah, so we grow both vegetables and fruits. We are more heavily weighted towards vegetables, but we've been planting more fruit. So we, um, in terms of vegetables, we try to grow every vegetable we can. <laughs> and that's, um, you know, because our farm is the UC Davis student farm and it has a dual purpose. Both we're growing food for our community and for customers, um, a production farm, but we also, our main mission is to teach uh, UC Davis students about agriculture and how to grow organic crops. So we are growing all sorts of things. Like right now we have fennel and leeks and broccoli and carrots and we're taking out all the summer crops so we had tomatoes and eggplants and peppers are coming out right now our sweet potatoes and butternut squash are in storage we also are harvesting persimmons and pomegranates this time of year and then earlier we have a lot of figs and we have pluots and great we also have a vineyard with table grapes we also try to grow a lot of culturally diverse crops as well for other, because we have students from all over the world and students get very excited about, I just had a student the other day who, well, one of our crops is gailan and she said, that's actually broccoli in Chinese. And it's a mm. kind of variety of broccoli that's grown, it's from the seed is from China. And that, you know, if we try to grow, we grow perilla or shiso and that's a Korean herb. And we're growing up like lots of different vegetables so that each student will have a connection to something we're growing here. Oh, that's yeah, that's really cool. Are you growing outside or in greenhouses or both or you know, how are you growing? Yeah, most of what, everything we grow is outside. We do have a greenhouse, but it's the greenhouse is mainly used for growing transplants. So we grow all our, tra- we make our own compost, we make our own potting soil. And we grow all our own transplants. So the students are able to see each part of that process. Um, but yeah, we have all of these transplants we grow in the greenhouse. Then they're getting planted out into the field. Uh, we do grow a couple things. We grow like a basil crop 
in our greenhouse, but mostly our greenhouse is used for a growing start. Well, what about in the, you know, the fall and the winter and the spring? Are you guys not growing anything? Well, or what you, you know, doing? yeah, so we're in California and that is one of the most amazing things about California, as well as one of the most frustrating is that you can grow vegetables all year round in California. <laughs> and we, our CSA goes all year round. Our CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And it's basically where you know, producing baskets of produce for community members every week. We have 110 members, and we also sell to the dining service at UC Davis. So you, you give it away yeah. to other, to the dining service at UC Davis, or do you actually have like a stand where you sell produce to students and maybe local people? Well, we also do have a farm stand as well. So we have a farm stand every Monday. We have a farm stand and that's student run. Students run the farm stand. Students also manage our community supported agriculture program, our CSA program, and then manage the sales to the dining service. And yeah, so we're selling to all these different places. Ideas that we're, that are, we're targeting UC Davis community and we don't try to go to other farmers markets because we are, we're part of UC Davis. We're a publicly funded institution. So we're not trying to compete with other farms. We're trying to help work with other farms. And so we don't want to compete in the same markets as other people, but this is a service that we provide to the UC Davis community. Okay. That's very cool. So um, the students that work in these, uh, in these areas, are they all in agriculture or do they do it just because they enjoy it? Like what are the reasons and the places students come from to do this? Yeah, we have students from a variety, a lot of different majors. We have some from mechanical engineering we have some from human development. We have we do have a sustainable agriculture and food systems major at UC Davis, and we have a number of students who are in that major at the farm. But there's a variety of reasons that people, you know, we have internships, so students can get internship credit for interning at the farm. We also have student employee positions, and those are our lead student farmers who do almost all aspects of running the farm. And um, so there's a variety of different reasons that people, you know, there's, we have a community here. I think people really like working with other students. They like working outside. Um, I think that also people are interested, you know, we have a student who's really, the mechanical engineering students really interested in precision agriculture and automated, automated equipment and is working on that as an undergraduate. So, you know, we have students who are, Coming for all different reasons. Yeah, no, that's that's excellent. Very good. Um, so, what are the uh, the challenges that you guys face? You know, that are common that uh, reoccur. I don't know if um, is there is there a curriculum when students work? You know, for the CSA, like, do they go through a set of training? Do they have to learn certain skills? And again, are they confronted with problems that uh, are you know, I guess for lack of a better word, perennial? Yeah, I would say that we do have, you know, I'd say, so the the student farm was started by students in the 70s. And so there's students who started it and they have since left. And, you know, I'd say one of the challenges is, you know, we do have a very rotating cast of students. We do have a good program where, you know, students will be training other students on like, this is my role. And so people are learning you know, one of our missions is about experiential learning. So learning as you're doing something, really getting to experience what people are are being taught about in the classroom, but don't actually have the hands-on learning for it. 
So I think one of the challenges is, you know, it was started by students. And, you know, I think the farm has grown a lot since then. It's actually much larger now. We're on 23 acres and we we have like research components. We have research projects that are going on some of the land. We have like hedgerows and we're, you know, continually trying to, you know, do things more sustainably. Like, but we are in the middle of like, I'd say, you know, a lot of challenges with sustainability in agriculture, um, especially in California. You know, there's a drought going on and a lot of our infrastructure is, because it was started with students, it wasn't like a big grant. It has all been kind of very DIY from the beginning. And so a lot of the infrastructure is outdated and I think could be improved and we're working on that. But I feel like often, I'd say one of the challenges is like, we all want it to happen right away, but on farms, one of the things you'll learn is like, you kind of keep chipping away at those goals and try to increase the sustainability over time. And well, I what think, does that mean? especially what does when you're mean in the middle, what does that mean? What does that mean? The sustainability. What are some examples of what you're trying to do? Yeah. So when we think are thinking about sustainability, we're really thinking about it with many prongs. So I think there's the social aspect of sustainability, which I think it's something that the student farmers here are very interested in thinking about. And that is, you know, like who's growing our food? How is people that are growing our food being compensated? Which is the answer is not enough. And there's the social sustainability of like who owns land and how is that land transferred from generation to generation? There's also there's a lot of aspects in that. There's also, you know, the economic sustainability, like you know, are we able to keep maintaining the student farm from year to year with our sales? And so there is always that push to like make sure because we need to make enough money from what we sell in order for the university to say, yeah, we can keep continuing. (laughs) And then there's also the third aspect, which I think a lot of people really gravitate to the third aspect of sustainability, which is the environmental aspects. And that is, you know, we're thinking about those all the time. It's like, what are our natural, you know, wildlife? Like, wh- how do we support? We're putting up owl boxes for owls, looking at we're planting, you know, native California native plants to have more uh, native pollinators at our farm. We're also thinking about things like energy sustainability. So we've been applying for grants to get, I think we're going to get an electric tractor and hopefully an electric kind of, we, you know, to move all our produce. We grow, you know, over 20, really over 40,000 pounds of produce, and we have to move all that produce every year. (laughs) And so we need vehicles. And one of those, we were hoping to switch to electric for those vehicles as well. And we've been writing grants to try to do that. So the energy sustainability, we'd love to be a fossil fuel free farm. But, you know, we're starting where we're at, which is you know, tractors. Well, how, how, are you, how are you supposed to do that if uh, fertilizer is made by with fossil fuels? I guess if you're going to well, switch so to all the, compost that you guys create, but yeah. Yeah, so we're organic. So that's one of the things of organic farms. Organic farms do not use any fertilizer that's made from fossil fuels. We are all, so an organic farm, and that's one of the key things for organic farms. We're not using any of that Haber-Bosch process, to fit, which is a very energy-intensive process to take ammonium and make nitrogen fertilizer. So 
when we in our farm we're making our own compost we also right now you know one of the key things you do is plant a lot of cover crop and so we are very into planting cover crop we cover crop about a third of our land well a third to a half of our land and then the rest you know, is growing, we do grow crops in the winter time too, but we're, that cover crop is fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere and that's returning nitrogen to your soil. And that means that you don't have to buy fertilizer. You don't have to use fossil fuels to bring in that, those nutrients. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. Well, not to bring in nitrogen, but phosphorus and potassium. Um, is that coming from the compost or where is that coming from? You know, for the NPK yeah, mix. So that, that actually, yeah, the PK really does come in. You actually get, if you put on compost, you often get too much phosphorus and potassium from your compost. You know, we get our, the, the base of our compost comes from, we have, there's, at UC Davis, there's animal barns, so there's horse and goat barns, and we get their manure, and we make it into compost. And oh, nice. Yeah, so that actually provides a lot of, most of the other nutrients. You do need to, like, do soil samples and check for if you have a nutrient deficiency, and there, it is allowed in organic to put anything as well on the soil that's mined. So if you have, you know, some things that can be deficient are like zinc and you can apply zinc if, you know, it needs to be mined and not have been created in the lab. You know, you can't be using fossil fuels to be creating the fertilizers you're putting on. Right. But in order to mine stuff, you need fossil fuels. So I guess it's uh, it's still there. It's probably unavoidable. Right. But. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, there's definitely fossil fuel. Like and like I was saying, we want to be a fossil fuel free farm. We are, you know, we're not there at all. Like we use diesel tractors. We do have, you know, part of it is like we have some beds that we do no-till practices and students are really interested in no-till. We have a student who's going to be doing a project on using a roller crimper, which is a way to, you know, you have this cover crop and you need to get the nutrients back in the soil, but you can use a tool that crimps the cover crop and that's a no-till practice that you can use. And you use less fossil fuel if you're using those practices. So, you know, we are trying lots of different things. It's, you know, we're an educational farm. So if a student says, like, I want to try this out, you know, I, I'm, my job is to be like, all right, well, let's see if we can make it happen. You can't say yes to everything, but we do try to like try a lot of different practices here at the farm. Another big part of sustainability, the environmental sustainability is the water too. You know, and in this drought, it is a big aspect. So we are, we use lots of different, we have drip and we have, we do both surface drip and subsurface drip, which helps us save water. And we also use sprinklers, but we're always trying to figure out like, is there a way to use less water 
to have mulch. You know, one thing I'm excited about is we have these hedgerows that grow drought-tolerant crops. Could we grow more drought-tolerant crops while we're in a drought? <laughs> I gotcha. Okay. The yeah. students, are they all volunteer? So do you have any labor costs or no? Yes. No. So we have student employees. So we have student interns, internships, and those, we have some paid student interns. And then we have um, some interns that are have, are getting academic credit but are unpaid. That is another one of our goals. You know, I'd say on the economic sustainability front is to have all our interns be, internships be paid, but we need more funding to make that happen. We do yeah, have, it, uh, um, like right now, we have about, sorry, we have about 25 student employees that are paid. So they're, they're, it's a student assistant job. And it's, they are in school, they're doing classes, but they're also managing to work at a farm. And it's pretty awesome to see how they make it work. <laughs> right. But unlike other farms, you do have some unpaid labor, but yet the economics are still well, not very favorable, it sounds like. So how would a, um, you know, a commercial farmer be able to make money with, you know, produce prices being what they are and the cost of, you know, food, fuel, fertilizer, et cetera, and labor, you know, all going into the equation? Well, yeah, there's many aspects to your question. So one, I would totally agree that right now, farm labor as a whole is completely underpaid. Produce used to be, you know, a bigger portion of Americans' budget. But in the last, if you look what has happened over the last 60 years, the amount of our, every person's budget that they spend on food has decreased. The amount that they spend on rent has increased. And um, so the... You know, I think that right now we do not have a sustainable agriculture system. We all need to be spending more on food. I think the federal government could help step in because there's a lot of people, if food was more expensive, would have trouble making ends meet. But there's a way for like there to be a transition to a much more sustainable agriculture system. And it starts with actually paying people enough for doing this hard work. You know, farming is hard work. It's no joke. And we have, you know, here at the farm, you know, we are uh, an educational farm. So, you know, our students that are working here are spending a, a portion of their time learning. You know, we do. It's not like they come to the farm and it's all work, work, work. It's like we'll do, you know, today we were learning about planting cover crop and planting cover crop and intermixing mustard. And so compared to many other production farms where you know, the mission is not about education. I would hope that many of those, that there wouldn't be unpaid work. I do know that in scale agriculture, there is a tendency to rely on unpaid internships. And it's something that I was an unpaid apprentice at one point. And I feel very strongly that that's something that needs to change in the sustainability of small scale agriculture is that, you know, all of this work should be paid. And I think it's an important step towards making the public also realize that this is something that they need to be paying for out of their pocket. <laughs> well, again, economically, it has to work. Otherwise, you can't pay people. So it sounds like costs of produce and, and you know, fruits um, would have to go up to be able to uh, afford salaries for people. Again, that you call is, quote unquote, enough. You know, otherwise, economically, it just can't work. If you don't make money doing it, yeah. such a thing, you can't live. If you lose money, you certainly can't live, you know? Yeah, and I think that there's, like, in small-scale agricultures, I know, and, like, I know a bunch of farmers who, you know, are really doing a lot of unpaid, 
uh, labor themselves. Like a lot of times small scale farms are like, yeah, I'm making it work, but they're not counting all those hours that they're spending at night on the weekends trying to make it work. And they're not actually paying themselves a living wage. That's like a very small scale farm. And then I'd say, you know, all the way up, you know, like farm workers are doing some of the hardest work out there and they're not being paid living wages. They're not being paid enough to make, you know, we have students here who are the children of people who've been farm workers for decades. And it's not, uh, you know, it's not a profession that it says like, okay, you're making enough. This is a profession you want to go into. And it's actually one of the key things we need to do to protect our planet is to take care of our soil and our land well. And right now we are not valuing that. And that has repercussions in lots and lots of different ways. <laughs> yeah, I understand. So you're, you're, uh, you're schooling people in regenerative agriculture, it sounds like, with cover crops and, you know, some no-till and, um, you know, producing your own compost and trying to make it as circular as you can with the inputs, right? Yeah, always trying to make it as circular as we can. I feel like um, we're also, you know, teaching people, you know, the basics as well of like, you know, how do you harvest a rutabaga, <laughs> you know, and teaching people, you know, how like the mechanics of how you do every step along the way, how you plant, feed the rutabaga, how you then, you know, prepare the soil for the next crop. And we do teach classes. There's a number of courses at UC Davis that are based out of the farm. So there's one on organic crop production. There's one on um, insect, you know, like looking at pests and beneficial insects at the farm. So a number of courses have are using the farm space. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, what are some of the major challenges that appear to reoccur all the time, you know, in farming? Yeah, in farming. Okay. <laughs> well, there's so many. Like, you know, I think farming in general is about having problems and solving them. And so there's there's perennial challenges. I'd say, you know, one of the biggest things that is fresh on my mind, because I was a beginning farmer, I, I now have graduated to being a little bit, you know, I'm now I'm teaching beginning farmers, but is land access. I think people don't realize, like, how the environment has just changed such that, you know, you know, 30 years ago, it was viable as someone who's starting out and being like, I want to be a farmer to find a small piece of land that they could afford and buy it and live there and start to, you know, grow their farm. Right now, that is not a viable pathway for anyone who's, you know, doesn't come from lots, who doesn't come from a wealthy family. So, that pathway of being able to start a farm is really broken. And one of the repercussions of that is like beginning farmers, you know, are, are renting, they, you know, people still want to farm and grow food for their communities. It's one of, you know, the most grateful things you can do. I was like, I want to provide food for, you know, the people I love. But the, you know, the issues really are, you know, people are leasing land. They have short-term leases. They are not able to make the same kind of improvements that you really could over time or say say they do improve the soil over time and then they lose the lease and then they're on another piece of land. They don't have that same permanence and they also don't have any place to live. And so there's a number of beginning farmers who are, you know, really 
uh, housing insecure, you know, losing leases on their houses, not making enough money farming, and then also not having a secure place where they can live. Whereas in the past, you would get your piece of land, you'd live on it, and you'd have houses. So there's, there is like so what, a lot what, of what issues. Is, what is the main issue? Is it purely economics of the model? It just doesn't provide enough income to be sustainable? Or are there other issues? Yeah, I think that the price of land has really gone up quite a bit. And it's not only just the price of land, it's also size of the pieces of land have also become. So we have, you know, if you have a small scale, like say you have 10 acres, that's near a market where you want to grow for that 10 acres is now being sold at astronomical prices to be a ranch at home. And it is like a little mini mansion. And once the mini mansion is built on that 10 acres, now that piece of 10 acres, when it's being sold in the future, is going for $3 million, right? Somebody coming right out of college, that's, you know, that's, there's no way you are afford, you don't want the $3 million home. You want the 10 acres to grow food. And those parcels are not being available. And then another thing that is happening is there's a big land conservation movement. And that's something I'd really love people to know about is that Land conservation is great. You know, there's natural land conservation for like wildlife. Great. No issues with that at all. But then there's also land conservation for farmland. And what happens in this process is that these like land trusts are getting public money, you know, subsidies, also donations. It's a, something that, you know, they, they raise a lot of money to preserve farmland. But the way they do this is by buying the subdivision rights. So it means that a big parcel of land is protected in perpetuity from ever being divided. And that helps because, you know, there's less of these ranchettes. But it also means that over time, there's less and less small parcels of land that a beginning farmer could afford. And it means that the, when you look on the market of what size parcel, you know, a beginning farmer would have to buy, it's 160 acres. This is someone who doesn't have farm equipment. This is someone that doesn't have a market already. And that transition to 160 acres, like that's completely impossible for a beginning farmer to start farming on 160 acres. A, having the money, but B, even having the equipment and the market set up to be that, to farm on that size is just not feasible. So really over time, what we're doing is we're setting up a system that says, we don't want new people in farming. And that's going to be a problem because the average age of farmers right now is about, I think it's 56 going on 60. And so we have a lot of farmers who are approaching retirement. And the new, there are people, I teach all these people who want to get into farming, but they also are smart and they're looking at the economics. They're looking at the price of land and they're saying this, there's no way this pencils. And you know, you're going to have a big gap where all of a sudden it's like our idea of what a farm is, is going to change because the only people who are going to be able to afford those 160 acre parcels are very large corporations. And then we just have, you know, three large corporations growing our food. Guess what the price of food will go up at that point? (laughs) Let me tell you, it will. Right, And it'll be siloed into few products, not nearly the diversity of crops that you guys grow. And so far as I understand, the subsidies are only for a handful of crops like wheat, soy, corn, etc. All the other crops you grow, I mean, there's probably no government help for growing them would be my guess. I don't know. 
Yeah, there are very, you know, there, but all the commodity subsidies are another big issue. Those really do, you know, that, that is why McDonald's burgers are so cheap is because there's government money funding the corn. They're funding the corn that the cows eat. And that makes that kind of food cheaper compared to a, like, you know, a fresh local tomato or a head of lettuce. And that, also is impacting, you know, the bottom line. There are, you know, some government programs for beginning farmers. So there are FSA loans. There is like organic transition money. So there are is some amount of money, but the commodity program really is something that I think needs to change. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Do you teach just people that want to do large scale farming or what if someone wants to do like a homestead and grow things for, let's say, their family and their household? Is there a part of the curriculum that addresses that or no? You know, we are open to teaching a range of students. So some students come from large scale agriculture. We totally, you know, we like, we really like interacting with those students and talking about it. I think, you know, all the different scales of agriculture have something to teach each other because there's equipment that, you know, large scale farms, we could adapt that for small scale farms. There's also things we're doing on small scale farms. You know, I have a student who is working on a small, a large scale farm this summer. And he was asking, you know, he was saying, okay, in the, in all the water runoff, they're just like dumping copper sulfate, which kills frogs, which kills all our amphibians. Is there anything, you know, he's like, we don't do that here on this farm. What could they do at a large scale farm to stop this kind of practice? And, you know, thinking about, cross-pollinating the different ideas, I think it's important to have many different skills of agriculture. And so, you know, when we're teaching students, we're open, you know, if somebody came in and was really into conventional agriculture and pesticides, that's not something we teach here, but we would be open to like, you know, teaching them what we do on an organic farm and also connecting them. We have plenty of farms here at UC Davis that also do use pesticides. So, it's, you know, we're, we're very equal opportunity for all the different You know, if I lived in California near the university, could I go to you guys and say, hey, I'd love to volunteer or, you know, I'm willing to pay for lessons. Do you have any like community type um, stuff where non-university personnel can come and work if they wish to? Yeah, we do have a volunteer program. So uh, we have, um, you know, community members can volunteer, you know, we have CSA members who come and volunteer as part of our CSA and, you know, that's something we're very open to. We don't currently have, like, a lot of classes for community members, but I just actually came from a meeting where we were talking about trying to do more of, like, reuse recycling workshops that would also be open for the public. So, you know, things that we're working towards. Right now, we are open for volunteers, but not the courses, all the classes you do have to be registered at UC Davis to take. Oh, well, that's too bad because, I mean, you guys could earn money if you're able to do, like, workshops on different aspects of, of the CSA and what you do, you know, the, the public would pay for it, let's say. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. I feel like, um, you know, the UC Davis has its own um, kind of registration and curriculum, and so I think that there are ways we can maybe improve in that way. Okay. Any challenges in terms of the uh, the growing itself? You know, any um of the products that you grow that uh, you think need a lot of education in order to be able to grow properly? You know, any of the, any of the vegetables Mm. or fruits that you guys grow that are, you know, for like, which ones would you say are for beginners and which ones do you say are intermediate and maybe advanced? Oh yeah. Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, I do think that 
you know, all crops really can be grown. I think it's important for, I would say, you know, for somebody just starting out, it's important to start with not too many things. <laughs> I've, I've heard this from more experienced farms as well as like, you know, pick 10 things and really get good at growing those. And then you can add to it, you know, but most crops are pretty, you know, you know, I say beginner can grow them. It really depends on your soil and water and environmental conditions, whether something's going to grow well. Like one thing that's more challenging that we've planted lately is um, it's just new for us. We planted moringa, which is a crop that comes from um, Africa and um, India. It's grown a lot in Africa and India. It's high in antioxidants. It's um, something that we didn't know we could grow here before because it is more of a tropical crop. But it, you know, it, it frosts in the winter. But it came. We planted it last year. It was a student project to plant the moringa bed. And yeah, now we've had two years. We've sold some to the dining service. It's not a super well-known crop, so that sometimes can be a challenge as well. You know, you can grow lots of things, but do the customers actually want them? Um, and so there's an education component of that, that this is what this crop is, and this is what you can do with it. Well, besides some of the experimental ones you're getting that grow in other areas, typically, you know, the ones that grow in California normally or the United States, which ones do you consider advanced or more difficult and why? Okay. I guess like, you know, something that we have tried growing but didn't have a ton of success with is um, celeriac and Brussels sprouts. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's about the, you know, having the right soil conditions and the right, you know, we, we don't spray a lot. And so some crops are more, ten, you know, have a higher tendency to have more pest issues. And, for, yeah, so celery is another one that we don't grow very much because that one is a harder crop to grow. Um, it's pretty susceptible to a lot of pest damage. Mm, okay. So what do you think will be the future of, uh, you know, the, the market garden at UC Davis? Like, what, what do you see is going to be different about it maybe in the next few years that you're working on it actively? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, we are really gung-ho about this fossil fuel-free farm. And I think if we take that seriously, there is a lot of things that will need to change. And um, figuring out, like, you know, we have a system that works well for us right now that does involve tillage. And we've been trying the no-till beds, but, you know, that's really not um, – it's – it hasn't been figured out for a larger scale yet. And so I've been contacting professors here at UC Davis to say, like, can you help us, like, come up, you know, figure out how to modify some equipment so we could, you know, use, you know, if we got an electric tractor, potentially the way we do it is we put down um, tarp and we tarp the ground, but it's pretty labor intensive to tarp the ground. And if we tried to do the whole farm with it, it would be very, it would take too much time. So if there is a way to use an electric tractor to do that, you know, maybe there is a, a format where we could be a fossil fuel free farm. And I think, you know, climate change is on everybody's mind. So, like, I feel like that's just the reality of, like, we need to figure out how we um, grow food with less fossil fuel because, you know, that's uh, that's our future. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, well at least um, that's what's the hopeful the... future. <laughs> sure. What's the best place for people to learn more about, you know, the market garden there and to, you know, maybe participate or at least, you know, learn about it and discover more? 
Yeah, so um, our website, if you Google UC Davis Student Farm, I could give you the URL if you want, if that would be helpful. But sure, we'll do both. So people can Google uh, UC Davis Student Farm, and what, what's the URL as a backup? Yeah, so um, it's, let's get it right here. It's the URL, I think, so if you go to asi.ucdavis.edu, there's under programs, one of the links says Student Farm. And that is probably, if you go to asi.ucdavis.edu, that's the Agricultural Sustainability Institute at UC Davis, and we're part of that institute. Okay, well, very good. Emma, well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, no problem. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.